Today's interview is brought to you by our friends at Public. You'll be hearing more about them later on in the show. But for now, let's get into today's interview. It is January 4th, and I'm really happy to welcome back to Forward Guys for the first interview of the year, Joseph Wang, Chief Investment Officer of Monetary Macro and author at FedGuide.com. Joseph, great to see you. Happy New Year. How are you doing? Hey, Jack. It's great to be here. Honored to be the first guest on this fantastic show. Everything is going well. Happy New Year to you as well. Yeah. So I I hope you had a good one. Let's talk about inflation and growth. So what if, if I guess the theme of 2023 was mainstream economists predicted a recession and it didn't happen for a variety of reasons. What do you think the theme for 2024 is going to be? So right now, I just for some context, like you mentioned, Jack, everyone got 2023 really wrong in the mainstream media. And right now, I think all the buzz is about the basically the end of inflation. Now, if you look at the inflation numbers year over year, they're still comfortably above the Fed's target. You know, they're somewhere between three and four percent. But if you look at uh, inflation over the past few months, say three months annualized, six months annualized, they're pretty much around the Fed's target. And so I think there's a lot of people thinking that inflation is dead. We're all back to the same regime that we operated in before 2020. I think the big surprise this year, though, is that we find out that disinflation was actually transitory, and we'll see a resurgence of inflation later on in the year. Why is that so? So when I think about inflation, on a high level, it's basically when demand pushes up against supply. You can have too much demand, you can have a decline in supply, or you can have both. And over the past few years, what we've seen is both. Obviously, we've had tremendous amounts of fiscal stimulus, And at the same time, we've had a scrambling of supply chains and a sudden departure of a lot of people in the labor force. So when I look at what happened over the past few months, I noticed that one, growth continued to be very strong, above trend, and at the same time, inflation came down. Now, that to me strongly suggests that the disinflation we've seen is due to improvements in supply. And that's pretty obvious. So the New York Fed has a global supply chain index that tries to measure the extent of supply chain disruptions. And what we've seen is that the index is showing amount, a large amount of supply chain disruptions uh, over the past two years, and that's normalized. And at the same time, we also know that during the pandemic, we had a bunch of boomers and older people retire in the workforce and not come back. And we see that in this sudden drop-off in the labor force participation for those age 55 and up. And I know that captures more than boomers. So at that time, we had a sudden decline in the amount of people working. And so we had sudden shortfalls in labor as well, in addition to sudden shortfalls in supply of, of, goods, and, of goods due to supply chain disruptions. And that all significantly improved over the past two years. If you look at labor force participation, for those in the prime age working group, it steadily increased. So the rise in wages that attracted a lot more people to participate in the labor market And so in a sense, labor force participation went up, the supply of labor increased as well. And so that increase in supply, both in goods and in labor, went a long way in pushing down inflation. So that's the supply part. But that improvement, though, is basically over. Now, going forward, we will probably still have some increases in labor force from immigration, but from labor force participation, that's probably not going to happen to the same way it did before. And at the same time, though, demand continues to be very strong. When I look at demand, I look at it 
Uh, basically, do households have enough money, have enough financing to continue to purchase? And I look at this through three levels. First, of course, is wages. Second is net worth, so wealth. Third is financing. And when you look at all these three sources of financing, well, households look really good right now. So household wage growth is about 5%. Now, that's a lot higher than it was pre-pandemic. And the labor market uh, continues to look pretty strong. And I would expect it to continue to be structurally strong going forward because of demographics. So if you take a big step back and look at demographics over the past a few decades, you'll notice that, well, since the 1980s, people had smaller families. And so our workforce population isn't growing to the same rate that it used to. And that's really showing up. So our workforce population is, is not growing to the same level that we are today and the boomers are retiring. And that's going to be a structural tailwind for employment going forward. So anyway, uh, if you look at labor's, labor data so far, it, it looks pretty strong. Unemployment rate still around multi-decade lows, wage growth strong. It's been moderating, but it, it's still historically quite strong. It doesn't seem like it's changing at the moment. Now, next step, you look at household net worth. And household net worth is at all-time highs. Now, the latest official data that we have from the New York, from the Federal Reserve, shows that you know household net worth as of the end of September was around all-time highs, not quite. But since then, we've seen the stock market go to the moon. House prices continue to appreciate. So I'm pretty sure that household net worth is at all-time highs at the moment. Now, the big difference between today and the past 10 years is that the extent of the wealth appreciation is a lot broader than it was in the past. The past 10 years, we had the stock market go to the moon, but of course, very few people own stocks. The difference now is that we also have the housing market, house prices go to the moon over the past few years. So over the past few years, house prices have appreciated, say 25, 30% nationwide, and over 60% of Americans own their home, and so they're all benefiting from this wealth effect. If they want, that's going to make them feel psychologically more secure to go purchase. And if they want, they can always, of course, sell their home, downsize, take that cash, buy something else, take out a home equity loan, and so forth. So they have a lot of spending power. Now, the last thing that I'll notice is that as the market anticipates that the Fed is going to cut rates going forward, we've seen interest rates decline a lot. And so that means that people could lever up and go and buy something. Now, the thing about delivering up and buying something is that it's, it's going to be dependent upon one, the balance sheet of the household, whether or not they can afford it, and also their income, whether or not they have enough income to carry to cover the interest payments. Now, the, uh, the debt servicing ratio of households is around a multi-decade low because overall, a huge chunk of households are locked into mortgage rates that are below 4%. And as we all know, mortgages are the li- largest liability for, for the typical U.S. household. So both the stock, so the balance sheet, and the flow, the income is going to be, is fine. And so they're in a position to lever up if they want to. So I think we could have tremendous, potential tremendous demand going forward. Now, the second thing I think is super important, and I will talk more about later, is that the deficit spending continues to be historically large and forecasted to continue. And that is tremendous amounts of demand. So overall, I'm looking at a picture where the supply chain improvements are past. Demand is still persistent. And I think that's going to push up inflation later on in the year and for the coming years. So if at the beginning of 2023, I think you posted on Twitter, you thought 
stocks would outperform bonds. And at the beginning of 2023, you know, everyone, myself included, very caught up with the recession call. My God, Joseph, he's such a smart guy, but there's no way that this is going to happen. But needless to say, stocks not only beat bonds, stocks crushed bonds in 2023. It sounds like in 2024, is that also your base case that stocks will outperform bonds? I think stocks will absolutely crush bonds this year. And I think that's going to be the trend going forward for the next few years. And, and the key is that there's just, just been this huge structural change in how the, uh, the monetary system is being operated. And that key has to do with just the tremendous amounts of deficit spending that now the fiscal authorities are doing. Now, this is something that we haven't really seen before. Now, in the past, we'd have people in Congress who talk about having a balanced budget and so forth. Uh, those people are all gone. So mm -hmm. right now, what we're having is people who are, you know, just basically just like to spend money. It, it really doesn't depend on which party. It, you know, some people would spend more money on, let's say, on corporations, or some people would spend more money on, say, childcare, healthcare, things like that, but they just want to spend more money. Now, the key to realize, the key to understand deficit spending is that at a high level, it's basically helicopter money. So when the government is doing deficit spending, it's basically buying goods and services and paying for it by printing U.S. Treasury securities. U.S. Treasury securities in the modern financial system, it's an asset. It's, it's basically money that pays interest. Now, I can't take $100 in bonds and go and buy dinner at Wendy's. But what I can do, though, is I can sell it in the market or I can borrow against it uh, in the repo market and so forth. It's totally liquid. And so as you do more and more deficit spending, you're doing helicopter money, you're basically adding equity into the financial system. And printing. That, uh, you are, you know, when I think back to, to, post to the post-GFC world, we have the Fed doing quantitative easing, and we have a lot of people in the markets talking about, you know, helicopter money, massive inflation, sell the dollar, buy gold, and we're going to have a huge decade of just rampant inflation. And that never happened because they misunderstood what the Fed was doing. The Fed was printing money, but then using it to buy treasury securities, which is another form of money. So basically, you're, let's say, taking five $20 bills and buying a $100 bill. That doesn't really change the purchasing power of the private sector. But when you do deficit spending, it does. It increases the purchasing power of the private sector. Let's walk through an example to make that more concrete. So let's say I'm the government, Jack, and you, you are the only person in the economy. So I borrow, let's say, I issue a $100 treasury bond and you buy it. So at the end of the day, from your perspective, you swapped $100 in cash and now you have $100 in bonds. You know, your, your net worth is unchanged. But of course, if I'm the government, I'm borrowing for a reason. And so the reason I'm borrowing is because I want to spend more money. And I basically sent you a, a semi check or something like that. And I'm the only person in the economy. So I, that's great. <laughs> so I like this. At the end of the day, Jack, what does your net worth look like? You have $100 in bonds but you also have $100 in stimmy checks. So your net worth is increased, your purchasing power is up, and we're doing this to a extreme extent. I think the deficit is estimated to be about $1.8 this year, and it's estimated to go higher and higher. So we are doing helicopter money full force, and that is uh, tremendously, tremendously bullish for the stock market and not good for the bond market, which is why I think the bond market, the stock market is going to crush the bond market this year and for the foreseeable future. And so 
uh, you know, bonds sold off immensely from 2020 to October of last year. They've had a, a pretty significant melt up in uh, November and December alongside stocks. So the 10 year is now just over 4%, having actually dipped below 4%. Uh, you know, it used to be at 5% in, in, in October. So if you think that the 10 year will rise, you know, so yields up, prices down, because stocks are going to outperform bonds. How does that square with your view on what the Federal Reserve will do and whether it will cut rates or how much it will cut rates? Because, you know, for me, there, there are days and there are periods where the 10 year goes up and the two year goes down. But like normally they move in the same similar direction. So if you were to tell me that you thought the 10 year was going to go to 5%, I think I would uh, infer that you don't think the Fed is going to cut it all or maybe once or twice, but certain, not the three times that the, the, the Fed put on the dots in December and certainly not the six that are priced into the market. So that's a really good question. So what is it that determines, let's say, the 10-year yield? So part of it is going to be expectations of policy and part of it is just going to be supply and de- demand dynamics. If you look at what happened over the past two months, there is a widely perceived Fed pivot. And as you know, Jack, the market is pricing in uh, six rate cuts next year. I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen. But the market is pricing uh, rate cuts aggressively. And when the, park, when the market begins to price in a lower path of policy, that's going to affect where the 10-year is trading. And so a lot of the decline in longer-dated treasuries over the past few months is because of this revaluation of the expected path of policy. So what the Fed is, what I think the Fed is going to do next year, it's, I think it's going to be trickier this year, this time than the past, because what I've perceived is there seems to be more of a politicization of all or all our parts of the government. So uh, it's going to be a bit more tricky when you look at that. But I do think that the Fed is going to cut, let's say, at least three times next year because they've telegraphed it. Well, it makes sense according to their framework. So the Fed likes to look at the world through the lens of real interest rates, and they've been building up for this communication for some time. Uh, President John Williams of the New York Fed basically sat down with a New York Times reporter a few months ago and had a 101 as to what real interest rates are. So now that inf- so they think of the world through the lens of real interest rates, which is nominal minus expected inflation. Now, they think that you know inflation and expected inflation have come down. So it makes sense for them to cut nominal rates a bit just to make sure that the real interest rate doesn't go up too much. Now that inflation has really declined so much from, let's say, the height of nine to where it is around 3% now, so it makes sense for them to adjust policy and cut a bit. So that part makes sense to me. But I think what will happen is that the supply and demand aspect, what people will think of as the term premium, although there's many different ways of measuring that, that's going to expand going forward. Uh, simply because the amount of debt issuance continues to be very large. Now, we've already seen how unexpectedly high a debt issuance can do to, uh, to the long end of the bond. I recall not too long ago, we had a 30-year auction that tailed significantly and just bonds just plummeted. So bond prices plummeted, yields soared after it. I think we might see more of that going forward simply because the issuance is so large. And I'm not sure that the financial system is flexible enough to absorb all that issuance so rapidly. If you look at the people buying that, they used to be, they're usually, you know, slow money people. And honestly, they tend to prefer um, corporate bonds, which, you know, don't have, have very minimal risk, but more yield pickup than, than treasuries. So I, that, that still remains to be seen. But I think that term premium uh, w- was going to widen going forward. So 
the long end is going to sell off as the Fed cuts, but the Fed isn't going to cut by more than what is priced in. So as the Fed cuts, the two-year ri- yield could could still rise. So the two-year yield is pricing in too much cuts. So mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I, I agree with that. So so part of it is just there's a huge psychological aspect in the markets where if you look past, over the past two years, the market has always been anticipating the Fed to cut rates very aggressively. I remember a couple of years ago when we were talking about this, Jack, Chair was saying that we're going to go higher for longer. And what did the markets do? The markets heard that, oh, we're going to go cut rates really soon. So mm-hmm. they were pricing that in quite aggressively. They're going back to that same mindset today. And so I think that even though the Fed is probably not going to be cutting, is not going to be cutting rates as aggressively as the market is anticipating, that they might not actually push back aggressively against market pricing. So this kind of psychology in the market could persist for some time. Why, why do you think they won't push back against it as strenuously, as, as vigorously as they did in 2023 and 2022? They haven't so far. Mm-hmm. And I think they haven't so far is because there's, so on the OFOMC, you have people of, of uh, a lot of people with comes with different perspectives. The most important person obviously is Chair Powell. But over the past two years, you've also have a significant change in the composition of members on the FOMC. You have President Biden appointing a bunch of people. And I, I don't really know how they perceive this. And the reason that I'm concerned about this is because there's a very telling op-ed in 2019 from former New York Fed President, President Bill Dudley. Now, in that op-ed, now, New York Fed President, at the t- when he was at the Fed, was the top third most important person in the entire organization. In that op-ed, he basically wrote that, you know, one of the presidential candidates is a really bad guy. So, you know, it might be okay if we just do something with monetary policy to to, uh, influence the election. I don't know if the new people there think that way as well. They could. They could not. I I don't know. I'm just taking a step back and making some observations. You know, it looks like there are a couple of states in the U.S., taking a presidential candidate off the ballot. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's, you know, that's something that we haven't seen before. Now, taking another step back, if we look at the Twitter files, Matt Taibbi, a journalist, does great work. He, it basically shows that the federal government was pressuring social media companies to suppress certain political news that uh, turned out to be true. So I think we're seeing a politicization of our institutions that we haven't seen before. And I suspect that the Fed is not immune to that. So that that might be a part of why I don't know if there's going to be as much pushback. And one other thing I'll note is that although the Fed chair controls the messaging of the FOMC, there is a way to sidestep that, and that's through the dot plot. So in the quarterly dot plot, everyone on the FOMC puts down their dot as to where they think unemployment rate, interest rates, and inflation will be for the next few years. The market pays a lot of attention to that because it gives a sense of just where the FOMC stands since they have a wide range of viewpoints. Now, one of the reasons why the Fed was perceived to be so dovish in December was because the dot plot was pretty dovish. It was penciling three cuts, and it seems like here people were thinking that there's been a change in the, I guess, our star. Now, even though the Fed chair controls the messaging on what happens at the press conference, what happens in the statement and so forth, if you are, if you are a member on, on the FOMC, you can use the dot plot to say kind of whatever you want. And so you, you, you have some pretty low dots in that, in that December FOMC, and maybe that continues. Okay, so because it's an election year, the Federal Reserve, at least in terms of forward guidance and tone, may not 
jawbone uh, rate cuts out of the market as they the Fed did did in the past. Uh, so, Joseph, you know, needless to say, I think the re- recession case. Uh, I mean, it didn't happen in 2022. It didn't happen in 2023. So it's you know noticeably uh, still weakened, but the case still exists. The case always exists. If you were uh, a recessionista, what do you think is the strongest argument in in favor of that there will at last be a recession? Yeah, I've seen these recessionistas for the past two years, and they've been saying all sorts of things that you know just don't make sense to me. I don't understand how you can be a recessionista when uh, you know deficit is 7.5 percent, unemployment rate and all time lows. I think a good argument well you can make is that you know we just have tremendous global uh, downturn in the global economy and that drags down the U.S. Or maybe you can have some geopolitical risk that that ends up impacting business confidence a lot. We do have a lot of geopolitical risk in the Middle East and maybe in East Asia. I don't know. So I think those are those are left tail scenarios, black swans, and so forth. But just looking at the U.S. economy as a whole, it doesn't seem like we're heading into recession. GDP growth continues to be strong. GDP now cast is at two point five percent today. Again, if you're printing and you're printing two trillion dollars in helicopter money a year, I don't see how you get to a recession. That seems that seems like I'm taking crazy pills, honestly. Today's interview is brought to you by Public. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why Public took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com slash forward guidance to get started and let them know I sent you. That's public.com slash forward guidance. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com slash bonds. Okay, okay. I I think were you in October when stock market was much lower than it was, bond prices were much lower, so bond yields were much higher. Were you thinking that there might be recession a yeah. little bit? But but yeah. now there's been a lot of net easing, as you wrote in your uh, piece, transitory disinflation. So now those worries you're not even thinking about. So I guess one path could be that we actually do have the bond market begin to sell off again, and you can have the longer dated interest rates rise a lot. And that could materially tighten some sectors of the economy, and that that could that could end up uh, having an effect and pushing the economy into recession. I, I think that's a plausible case. But I'd also note that we had interest rates go up a lot over the past two years, and it didn't seem to have as big an impact as you would expect. And so there's that argument that maybe the U.S. economy is just not as interest rate sensitive as people thought it was, or that it's being overcome by deficit spending and so forth. But you could have a scenario, I think, when you have the market realize that you know what we're doing fiscally is really crazy. And so I the yields have to go higher to make sense. And when you have yields higher, maybe that actually might have a, an effect that pushes the economy into, into recession. Yeah, I mean the, the scenario that you envision, it doesn't you know, it doesn't sound like Goldilocks to me of of strong growth and two percent, but strong growth and you know, inflation modestly above. I mean, that sounds like a a, a good economy. It sounds like uh, no. I think inflation yeah, yeah. is all stabilized between three and three and four percent. But going forward, of course, you know, inflation is not a straight line. Nothing is a straight line. So yeah. we have, so we have this period of what I think of as transitory disinflation, and things are going to look pretty good for a few months. But I, I do think inflation comes back later on, not like you know five six percent, but just 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 let's say above three percent going forward. 
Mm, yeah, another form of net easing you, you talk about in your piece is the weakening in the dollar. And I wonder how much of that is because of the Fed pivot that the market's pricing in. So it absolutely is due to Fed pivot. If you look at the timing, you can see that, you know, Fed pivot, market anticipates rate cuts, rates fall, dollar sells off. So I, I find that to be a little bit surprising in a sense, because when you're talking about currencies, you're, you're judging the dollar against other currencies. Now, if the Fed is pivoting and cutting rates because inflation is coming down, you'd expect other people, other economies to also do something similar. And indeed, you do have rate cuts priced in to, to other, to other uh, major economies as well. But and yet the dollar still sells off. I think the better play, if you think of the dollar as weakening rather than doing against other currencies, it'd be against something like uh, financial assets. So equities, for example. Wait, is this, what do you mean? Sorry, say that again. So when you think about the way, so okay, at a high level, deficit spending is helicopter money. You're printing a lot of dollars. You are basically depreciating the currency, right? That's mm -hmm. what you're doing at a high level. Now, when you're thinking about the value of a currency, though, there's a, there's a few ways you can value that. You can value that against other currencies. Let's say your USD, USD CAD, USD JPY, things like that. But a lot of that has to do with what other countries are doing as well. And honestly, globally, they're, they're not that different from the U.S. So another way you can look at currencies is to value it against, say, goods and services, inflation, or financial assets. There's just a, a currency is, it, it's, a, you know, it's a unit of measurement. So rather than say that what the Fed is doing is going to have a big impact on, let's say, currency cross, crosses, you can think of it as it having a bigger impact on things like financial assets or on the level, general level of prices, mm, so okay. inflation. Okay, that, that makes sense. Well, thanks, Joseph, for, for sharing your sort of overall macro view. I've got a ton of plumbing questions <laughs> about for you. Uh, the minutes just came out yesterday on, on January 3rd. But before we do, I just want to quickly let our viewers know about our digital asset summit. So that is going to be in London in March. And Joe's actually, let's put, a, put something on, on screen. Who we have here? Digital Asset Summit 2024. Down in the bottom right, we've got someone that looks like me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, so you're going to be there. Michael Howell is going to be there. I'm, I'm hosting a panel with you two and Julian Brigden. So it's going oh, to be my gosh, it's going to be fantastic. Really forward, looking forward to it. Michael Howell, Julian Brigden, some of the best people in macro. Can't wait to meet them in person. And I think it's going to be a fantastic conference. Yes, definitely. And you know, so much uh, at that conference is about crypto and digital assets. We are the the macro uh, wing. And I'm, I'm really excited for it. So people should uh, check it out and come. The link will be in the description and uh, the code that you can get 10% off for using the code for guidance of FG10. That's FG10. So yeah, it's it's going to be a blast. Have you, have you ever been to a crypto conference? No, I'm looking, looking forward to it. It's going to be my first one. Nice. Well, you chose well, Joseph. Blockworks runs an extremely, extremely good series uh, of events, and yeah, it's just you, you got, you got, uh, you. I'm really glad that you're going to be there. Uh, like the first Blockworks event that I went to convinced me actually to come work to Blockworks. Uh, it was so well run, um, and so yeah, it's going to be a blast. And I hope uh, uh, people watching this can can make it. All right, so Joseph. Now, uh, the Fed minutes just came out yesterday. There was a particular passage uh, that was of, of, of interest to you about the Fed's balance sheets and uh, when they will stop doing quantitative tightening. So before these minutes came out, uh, you, wrote, you wrote a piece uh, about, about this, came out in, in December, right before Christmas. So you already were attuned to this possibility. And was this passage uh, sort of confirmation? So to tell, tell us what, what you're talking about. 
Sure, it's about quantitative tightening. But before we go there, I would just make one note about uh, the macro section that we just talked about. So a lot of the comments that I get is that how can I think that interest rates can go higher along with equity and equities? I mean, shouldn't you have, if you have a 5% yield, of course, that's going to be bearish for equities, right? Now, I think that that requires a little bit more context. So in markets, you know, relationships always change. So for example, when we had 8% mortgage rates, people were thinking that house prices would crash because that's what happened in 2008, but it didn't. And so when you're thinking about the relationship between interest rates and the stock market, that also changes over time because it depends on why interest rates are going higher. Now, if you go back 100 years to the roaring 20s, now Martin Armstrong ha has a great chronicle of the greatest bull market ever. And he talks about how back then when people saw interest rates rise, they would saw that as a sign of, of bullishness. Because why do interest rates rise? Well, it's obviously it's demand for money, right? Interest rates mm -hmm. is the price for money. So when you see interest rates rise, there's demand for money, people are going to buy stocks, going to buy margin loans, going to invest and so forth. And that was a sign for bullishness. Now today, people look at this differently. Why are interest rates going higher? Because the Fed is, is trying to, you know, try, trying to cool the economy down and that's, that's not good, right? So if the reason for interest rates to go higher going forward is because you have a tremendous amount of fiscal spending, then I think that is a cause that would make bond yields go up and also stock prices go up as well. So I think the reason that interest rates move is important to understanding its impact. Okay, now, now that we've got that out of the way. So what we learned in the minutes is what I think what we've suspected, what I've suspected for some time is that QT is going to go on longer than many people expect. So historically, the Fed, so the Fed has two tools. One is interest rate policy, juggling the overnight interest rate. And the second is juggling their balance sheet. Now, these two tools have historically always gone in the same direction. So when the Fed is cutting rates, then they're, then they're doing QB. And when the Fed is hiking rates, then they're doing, doing QT. So the thing in the Fed, and this is basically dogma within the Fed, is that you don't step on the brakes and the gas at the same time. Really difficult to communicate. Market would get confused. But there's been a big rethink on how that whole thing works over the past few years. Now, former Vice Chair Colorida did an interesting uh, discussion on, on macro musings with David Beckworth, mm. where he suggested that, you know, you know, maybe we were a bit slow in raising rates, you know, a couple of years ago. And the reason that we were slow is because we had this dogma where, where we were still buying assets and we couldn't stop buying assets suddenly, right? And because we continue to do QE, we couldn't suddenly also increase the interest rates. That would be confusing to the markets. And so that contributed to us being a bit slow. And so now there's this huge rethink in the Fed as to how, how we do this. Now, this rethink seems to have been blessed by Chair Powell at the December conference when he referred to both the balance sheet and interest rate policy as being on quote unquote independent tracks. He's saying that we can cut interest rates next year and we can continue to let QT continue. The way that he's phrasing this is through the language of normalization. So let's look at interest rate policy first. So right now the Fed has been hiking rates a lot and now they're probably going to cut rates. How is the Fed thinking about rate, their rates, so rate cuts? So the Fed looks at this basically through a high level of whether or not they're being accommodative or restrictive. Now, they are restrictive when the Fed funds is above what they think of as the neutral rate. 
So for example, Fed fund, if they think the neutral rate is say 3% and Fed funds is at 5%, they're being restrictive. If they cut rates from 5% to 4%, they are still being restrictive because 4% is still above neutral. So the way that they're trying to frame this is that I'm going to cut rates next year, but I'm not changing the stance of monetary policy. I am not being accommodative. I'm being less restrictive. I'm still restrictive, but mm. just less so. I'm normalizing my stance towards neutral. And if you have this change, if you're changing this benchmark from you know just being accommodative or restrictive to normalizing, then what you could do from a balance sheet perspective is say, I'm continuing to shrink my balance sheet, but I'm not being you know, restrictive or so forth. I'm you know just being normalizing my balance sheet. And, and that's what they, they seem to be determined to do. So that looks like it's going to continue for some time. But when it eventually stops, though, it's not going to be a hard stop. What we learned in the minutes, Jack, like you suggested, is that they're going to taper their QT, much like they did in 2019. So right now, they're doing a maximum of $95 billion a month in QT. When they approach the finish line, they're going to start to scale that down. And I suspect that they're probably going to do this probably in towards the fourth quarter of next year. And it might be an extended tapering. It might be an extended tapering because uh, right now QT is continuing at a historically high pace. And if you're going 100 miles per hour, then you, know, you can scale down to 80, 60, 40, and so forth. In contrast, for example, the last time we did QT, the maximum pace was about $50 billion a month. So we're going a lot faster now than we did before. So it would, it would seem we could start tapering at the end of, towards the end of next year and maybe run that taper through uh, deep into 2025. We've, we've talked before, but it's been a while about the level of reserve. So I guess the, the quote from that, that, that you highlighted from the minutes is that several participants remarked that the committee's balance sheet plans indicated that it would slow and then stop the decline in the size of the balance sheet when reserve balances are somewhat above the level judged consistent with ample reserve. So is it basically saying... We'll do quantitative tightening until we get close to the level of ample reserves. And then that's question number one. Question number two is, what are ample reserves? So you're exactly right. This is the key binding constraint, but not the only constraint. So the other constraint would be when we shifting or if the Fed shifts its monetary policy stance from restrictive to accommodative. If that's the case, uh, it will always the balance sheet normalization QT would also stop. But again, that would happen if we fall into a recession, and it doesn't seem like that's in the near future. So the other binding constraint would be reserve levels. So the Fed has this operating framework where it wants to run monetary policy with a banking system that has what they call "quote unquote" ample reserves. So reserve levels right now, you know, slightly above four trillion. Reserves are basically cash balances, cash balances held by banks. So if you are a bank, just like you and me, we have checking accounts where we hold our cash. We hold them at a bank and in a bank and our checking account. If you're a bank, you also have cash. It's called reserves and you hold them in the Federal Reserve. You have a checking account at the Fed, so to speak. So the level of cash in the banking system is largely dependent upon the size of the Fed's balance sheet. When the Fed does QE, it's increasing the level of reserves in the, in the financial system. And when it does QT, it's shrinking it. So if you look at this chart uh, that you presented, you notice that overall reserve balances plus RRP have been steadily declining since quantitative tightening. And that's the Fed shrinking their balance sheet. Now, I include RRP balances here because 
you know, cash held by banks, just a minor plumbing thing, it could also, uh, let's see, flow into the reverse repo facility. So Fed officials have said that they think of uh, the, the thing, when they think of reserves, they include RP in, in it, because when you are a bank, you can always borrow from a home loan bank, which turn borrows from a money market fund, which in turn takes money out of the RRP. So in a sense, they are fungible. As you said, reserves are the assets of commercial banks and the liabilities of the Federal Reserve in the same way a JP Morgan deposit is the liability of JP Morgan, but the asset of, of a private citizen. So our, our re- uh, reverse repo facilities, those are also reserves. And this is the program that basically, you know, it started getting pickup in 2021, so that all the excess cash didn't flood into treasuries and ha- you know, force treasury bill yields to be negative, right? Right. So it's a basically, yeah, like it's like, like you said, Jack, it's like excess cash in the financial system. So I remember a couple of years ago, there were big banks like JP Morgan were getting all these deposits and they're like, I don't want all these deposits because of the leverage ratio. So there's this rule, this regulation where it's costly for a bank to have too big a balance sheet. And when the bank has too big a balance sheet, sometimes they can try to manage that balance sheet size by telling it's their depositors to go somewhere else. And that's what the big banks were doing back then. They told some of their big clients, no, we don't really want your deposit, but you know what? We have this really great product. It's called a money market fund. Can you take your money there? And so a lot of clients took their money to a money market fund. Money market fund had a whole bunch of money, didn't know where to put it, eventually deposited in the reverse repo facility in large part because, you know, interest rates in the private sector were, were lower than what the RRP was offering. So when you think of the, so when we're thinking about ample reserves, we want to add RRP together with reserves because senior federal officials have considered them to be fungible. So the, the other question you asked, Jack, is really a super key question. Just what is ample reserves? And the answer is no one in the Fed knows. So uh, when I was at the Fed, we did all sorts of uh, initiatives to try to figure out just what is the lowest comfortable level of reserves in the banking system. The lowest comfortable levels of reserves in the banking system is basically the minimum amount of cash the banking system needs to function. So what we would do back then was we would put all these surveys to uh, bank CFOs, bank CEOs. Uh, we had uh, PhD economists come up with all these crazy models and so forth. And the end of the day, I, I don't think anyone really knows. And Chair Powell definitely doesn't really believe in that stuff. So what's going to happen is that they're going to gradually decrease the amount of reserves in the system through QT and be watching for a few things that they think of as signs of um, reaching ample reserves and stop there. Now, I think one thing that they believe in, though, is that we are really far from ample reserves. The way that they look at this is that, well, you know, we were shrinking the balance sheet in 2019 and suddenly the repo market exploded. They think that's a sign of reserve scarcity. So let's say that, you know, the reserve levels at that time in 2019 as a percentage of GDP, let's let that be a rough measure of the minimum reserves the banking system needs. When you project that forward, you're getting a reserve level, a lowest comfortable level reserves measurement of a bit below $3 trillion. Today, we're comfortably above $4 trillion. So we have at least a trillion dollars of, of, of reserves that we can get rid of in quantitative timing before we, before we hit that minimum level, whatever it may be. Again, this is super, super you know, imprecise, but I think everyone at the Fed, from what I hear, thinks that whatever the lowest comfortable level of reserves is, 
And that's really hard to say over and over again. We are high, far, far above it. Yes. And that uh, $3 trillion is the red dotted line on your chart. So the quote normal level of reserves is just above that. So if the reverse repo facility is fully drained, we would be pretty close. So with quantitative, so the, the that facility is, the repo, reverse repo facility is draining. I know it's very quickly. I don't, I don't have the exact numbers. Quantitative tightening is $95 billion a month maximum, but it, it, it has been less so because of, you know, uh, Mortgage are, mortgages are not prepaying, although that could go up a, li- a little bit. Interesting. So is, ha, tell us how you arrive at that conclusion of you think that the Fed will either stop QT or start to slow it down. Do you say Q4 of next year? Is that what you said? Yeah, I think that that's probably when it would make sense for them to begin to taper. So Begin to taper, okay. Begin to taper. So if we have 12, 12 more months of QT at, at the current pace, we're probably going to be you know, let's say maybe three and a half trillion dollars in reserves towards the end of next year. And I think that's getting to the to the area, let's say, where the Fed would be a bit more cautious. So looking at assuming that whatever reserve levels as a percentage of GDP in 2019 was the lowest comfortable level of reserves, project that on to today, you get a number of you know, somewhere between 2.5 and $3 trillion dollars. So when you're at 3.5 trillion, you're getting close to where you think you might be uh, hitting minimum. And so I think that's that's when they'll start to taper a bit going forward. And they could taper for half a year. So it could it could go on for some time. So I think QT is going to go on for you know well into 2025. What are the consequences of that? I mean, there are people who say when the Fed is doing QE buy stocks and buy risky assets. And when the Fed is doing quantitative tightening, whoa, you know, <laughs> sell your assets and get into cash. I presume your your analysis is a little more nuanced than that. <laughs> At a high level, what quantitative tightening does is that increases the supply of treasury securities that the private sector has to buy. So if quantitative tightening is going longer than the market expects, and, and I think the market widely expects QT to end sometime next year, then at, at the margins, that's going to be a, a bit negative for treasuries, so higher yields. So that's the rate aspect. Now, there's another aspect to this that a lot of people talk about, and that is the quantity of reserves in the financial system. My sense is that there are a lot of people in the market who look at, say, you know, the level of reserves in the financial system and think that, well, reserves go up, bullish financial assets. So to the extent that there are a lot of people who think like that, then that's not going to be positive for financial assets. Now, to be clear, though, over the past couple months, we've seen reserve levels go up, even as quantitative tightening has continued, because money is flowing out of the reverse repo facility into the banking sector. And that's going to continue for the next few months. I would expect the RIP to approach zero by the first half of uh, this year. So that process is going to continue to boost reserve levels. And when that's done, we'll see reserve levels decline as QT acts solely in draining reserves. Wait, okay. So going back to that chart of the orange is repo, reserve balances is blue. So when money flows out of the orange reverse repo facility, does it turn into a reserve balance or does it disappear from the chart? It actually could do both. So, but uh, since we are, I know Ford guidance people really love plumbing. 
yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll walk through it both. So let's say that the a money market fund has money in the reverse repo facility. The U.S. Treasury issues $100 in treasury bills uh, and uses that money to repay the Fed. In that instance, what happens is that a money market fund takes money out of the reverse repo facility, so RP goes down, sends that money to the U.S. Treasury, and the U.S. Treasury takes the money and repays the Fed. So on the Fed's balance sheet, RP declines on the liability side and assets, treasury assets decline. Okay. So the Fed's balance sheet shrinks, reserve levels unchanged in that instance. That's one path. Another path is that let's say that the repo rates, private repo rates, the dealer repo rates are high. Money market fund takes money out of the reverse repo facility, say $100 out, and lends it to a dealer. The dealer then uh, lends it to a hedge fund who at the end of the day deposits it in a commercial bank. Then what happens is that the RP goes down by $100 and reserves in the banking system goes up by $100. So it's just shuffling the composition of liabilities uh, at, at the Fed. So there, there is some nuance to this. Yes, there is. And I remember you writing about the draining of the reverse repo facility at least as early as early 2022, maybe as early as, as 2021, which is or 2020 when you started the blog. So yeah, it's a little, I mean, you know, I feel like this, people talk about draining of the reverse repo facility has become pretty mainstream and you were, you were ahead of the curve, at least on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the funny thing is that if you're looking at quantitatively speaking, just purely quantitatively speaking, draining the reverse repo facility is in a sense similar to quantitative easing. For example, let's say that the U.S. Treasury issuing a whole bunch of Treasury bills, okay? So let's say it issues $100 billion in Treasury bills. Money market fund takes money out of the reverse repo facility, buys those bills. So the money moves out of the RRP facility into the Treasury's checking account at the Fed. But the Treasury, now let's say it's not repaying the Fed. Let's say it just spends that money to, let's say, missiles or doctor <laughs> payments, medical hairs, and so forth. It's buying a lot of missiles. So it goes to the banking sector. So what happens then? So RP goes down 100 billion, bank reserves go up 100 billion. So, you know, that, that's very similar to quantitative easing, increasing the amount of reserve assets and deposit liabilities in the banking sector. And some people are going to perceive that to be bullish and I and, uh, think that explains part of the rally over the past two months. So, and again, pricing is perception. So, and you're somewhat agnostic on that point of view about whether the draining was bullish. You no, know, I, I think I think it is mildly bullish because at the end of the day, you're going to have someone in the banking sector who has more deposits, basically uh, low yielding, low yielding form form of money that has credit risk that's not going to want it, and it's going to trade that for something else. Standard portfolio rebalancing. So, I think it does have an impact, but I don't think it's very strong. Okay. And now let's look at your math of the change in the Fed's balance sheet. Talk about plumbing. So the you know blue lines are the treasury. And by the way, I want to shout out, you know, so people who are watching this on YouTube, like always can see this on charts. It was the case that back in the day, only on YouTube were the visuals uh, available. But now I'm posting this on Twitter as well as Spotify. If you use pod- podcasting, you could listen to this uh, and watch this on Spotify. So I want to give shout out to Spotify, especially when, you know, it's, it's hard to uh, analyze this without, without looking at the chart, but okay. So the, the blue lines are treasuries, orange are agency mortgage backed securities and the 
gray line is the three-month average of, I, I think, the sum of treasuries and agency mortgage-backed securities. And the reason that the sum of these lines was not $95 billion, which is the maximum it can decline, although some, some instances it actually is greater than uh, $95 billion, although you, you, can, you can tell us why, uh, is because the, the orange bar is not being maxed out because rates, interest rates were so high that people are not refinancing their mortgages. So uh, mortgage-backed securities are not being paid off at the rate that it was being uh, assumed uh, back in the case. So basically, the, the duration of mortgage-backed securities are being um, extended. And that may change now that interest rates are, are going down. Um, so yeah, no, number one, can you explain this? Why is it that it appears that some of these uh, charts had months had declined greater than the cap of $95 billion? And then also, do you think that QT will accelerate this year because mortgage prepayments are going to pick up back up because rates declined? So Jack, you really hit the hammer on the nail there. So the Fed, as we all know, has a $95 billion maximum QT cap, but it's a cap that, that is usually not hit. And a large part of the reason that it's not hit is because mortgage payments, mortgage prepayments have not been coming in. So um, so if you are so what's special about mortgages is that you can prepay. So they're amortizing and you can prepay. So what does that mean? So when you make a monthly mortgage payment, let's say $2,000 a month, that mortgage payment is fixed for the life of your loan, but part of it goes to interest rate payments and part of it goes to principal. So when the Fed is thinking about quantitative tightening, they're really looking at the principal part. And so when they get a lot of repayments, that are in excess of their their so when they get when they get a lot of prepayments then they're 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 letting that roll off their balance sheet but the amount of the, sorry when they get a lot of principal payments they're letting that roll off their balance sheet yeah now, but principal payments though can come not just from your monthly payment but also from prepayments so for example if mortgage interest rates went down and let's say i have an 8% mortgage and now interest rates are 6% I can go out and take out a new mortgage loan and use the proceeds of that to go and, and repay my or old mortgage loan. In that case, my entire payment is basically principal because I'm re and I'm, you know, repaying my entire principal with a, with proceeds from a new loan. And when that happens, you could have tremendous amounts of principal repayments and whoever holds that loan, let's say in this case, the fed is going to have a lot of principal that it can then roll off. So now that now that mortgage rates are so high, so there's not a lot of a refinancing. So no one is going to go and take out a, you know and take out a mortgage, let's say at at eight percent to prepay a mortgage that they took out originally for at four percent, unless they really have to. And sometimes that's happening, but not that much. So most of the principal repayments right now are going to be through their monthly fixed payment, and that's just not a very high rate of uh, principal repayment. And so because of that, the Fed is not receiving a lot of, of principal, and so they're not able to maximize their, their monthly QT roll-offs. And so that's part of the reason why mortgage MBS ha has not really been rolling off as quickly off the Fed's balance sheet. And if you look at Treasury principal, though, it's a, it's a similar story to some extent because Treasuries, they're also pretty lumpy from month to month. So some months have heavy maturities and some don't. Uh, and so it's not going to be perfectly smooth as well. So they're, it's, they're not going to hit their target all the time as well. Although the Fed has more leeway there because they can also let treasury bills roll off. But but going forward, uh, there, there are going to be some times where the Fed doesn't hit their treasury principal roll off either. 
And the months where it appears that they exceeded their limit, how do you explain that? Oh, when that happens, then what happens is that, so let's say for for the sake of argument, the Fed has a $70 billion cap for treasuries. Mm -hmm. Now, if on that month, 80 billion actually mature, then what the Fed would do is they'll let 70 billion roll off and they'll reinvest the the 10 billion that, that exceeded the cap. And so that's why you can see the Fed still buying quote unquote stuff at treasury auction, it's because they're reinvesting the amount of maturing treasuries that were in excess of their QT cap. Okay, so this is not the net decline in Fed securities holdings. This is the gross decline. And that should be offset by repurchase. Okay, that that makes sense. Yeah. And then I think it's called the the CPR, the conditional prepayment rate or the cost. Yes, exactly right. That is yeah, what percentage of homeowners or mortgage owners in a pool are prepaying their loans. And it was shockingly high in you know April of 2020 when you had a rate shock. I think it was 50%. In some states, 60%. So 60% of people were prepaying their loans to take advantage of, you know, let's let's refinance or gonna make a lot of money. We're pay, paying it's good for the homeowner, you know, bad for the the bank. And now I, you know, in the doldrums and people who are who are watching this who, you know, are a real estate broker, they definitely won't be able to know what I'm talking about. Like the activity really froze. And I think it's what, you know, death, divorce, or relocation for a job moving. Uh, those are the only really three reasons why people would prepay their their loans, like because you'd have a, a mark-to-market loss if you were to, to do that. Not, not mark-to-market, but you would be economically losing money. No, you're uh, giving away something very valuable, right? You're giving away, let's say, a mortgage loan, borrowing money at 3% when rates are 6 7%. So uh, if you were to prepay that, it seems like a bad deal. Do you have any idea of how they would, the Fed would taper their, so would they go from 95 to 85 to 75, 95 to 60? How gentle do you think it would be? And then would one lever, would they, you know, stop the mortgages first and then do, do treasuries? What, what do you think? So I think they're going to, so uh, they, they could stop the mortgages first. So it's going to depend a lot upon economic conditions and market volatility, so we're looking at something that's going to happen maybe a year from today, maybe several months from today. So it's hard to say how financial conditions will be then. But I, I think it's fair to say that it will be tapered. My guess it's going to be tapered in two stages, simply because the rate is, is so quickly. The, the rate uh, that we're doing QT is much faster than than it was before. So it would make sense to gradually taper it, if only to make the market a bit more comfortable. That is to say, have a gradual adjustment. So... One of the thing, interesting things to look out for, though, is also that the Fed, in its principles, has stated that they would like to have a balance sheet, an asset portfolio that is entirely treasuries. So they want to get out of mortgages. So going forward, when we stop doing QT, what could happen is that the mortgages that the Fed has, when they receive principal, they reinvest them not in mortgages, but in treasuries. So we could have eventually moving the Fed towards an old treasury portfolio since they feel more comfortable that way. Because when you're buying mortgages at the end of the day, you're, you're, banking, you're allocating capital and in a sense, you're favoring homeowners over everyone else. Okay. And then the, the mortgage-backed securities, if prepayments increase, more of them will be rolling off the Fed's balance sheet. So more QT, which will on that, specific, you know, by, by itself, all things being equal, be slightly more tighter monetary policy because the balance sheet will be reducing more. However, it will be because there's more housing activity and that is bullish for the economy. And, and I, could I put you in the camp of you think the you know boom in the, the fall in interest rates and mortgage rates will be a significant boost to the housing market? 
2024. So when I look at the Fed's balance sheet, I noticed that a lot of the loans, a lot of the purchases they made were back in you know, 2020, 2021, 2022. That's when mortgage rates were really, really low. So uh, even if mortgage rates come down, say, to uh, 6%, I don't think that's going to affect their prepayments all that much, simply because everyone else, the loans that they hold uh, are just really low interest rate loans. But I do think, though, that when interest rates come down a bit, mortgage rates come down a bit, it's going to be really bullish for housing. So I think of this in a, in a couple of ways. Well, first, um, we got we got this huge stress test for the housing market over the past year. We got mortgage rates up to 8%. And all throughout, throughout that, we did see new construction decline a bit, but then steadily pick up. So if the mortgage, so if an 8% mortgage rate wasn't enough to slow down the housing market, then I think a 6% will, will really juice it. Now the resale market did decline a lot, did decline in activity a lot over the past year. But when it comes to GDP, the resale market is just not that important. The GDP component of, of housing has to do with building a new house, right? So you hire a bunch of people, you buy a bunch of materials and so forth. Whereas resale, you're just kind of, it's like buying a stock, right? You sell a stock to buy another. It doesn't really have that much of a GDP impact. It has some, but not as much as new construction. So one of the things that, that I, the second thing is that when I'm listening to home builder calls, Toll Brothers, for example, they made a really interesting observation. They noticed that you know housing, buying a new house, it's not purely a financial decision. For a lot of people, it's a lifestyle decision. So let's say that you have kids. Let's say that you get married. Let's say that you want to downsize because you, uh, your kids are out and so forth. Mortgage rates matter, but all these other lifestyle things, they matter a lot as well. So what ends up happening in many cases is that although mortgage rates went up, you have less purchasing power, you end up buying a smaller home, you end up buying buying maybe farther away than you would have liked, but you still buy a home uh, simply because you, know, you, you just need a home. So we have this huge demographic tailwind in, in, in homes that, that seems to be, I mean, if it's not going to be sought by 8% mortgages, I think 6% mortgages is going to set it on fire. And you can see that already in the market, right? Home builder stock surging, housing starts also surging. So I think that's going to be, that's going to be a tailwind for the economy. We're going to, from an investment perspective, it's going to, it's going to be additive to GDP. Mm. So the interest rate shock of 2022 and 2023 was not enough to slow the new home market, not enough to slow the economy. Do you think is the jury out on the lags of uh, how long between the interest rates are, are raised and how long it slows down economic activity? I mean, we're close to 24 months. You know, I think we, I mean, we did an interview in March of 2022. You know, we're, we're 22 months after after that, and uh, there's still no recession. I mean, like, you know, what's your level of confidence that the, the, the hikes have been fully processed by the economy? So central banking tradition is that monetary policy works with long and variable lags. That's another way of saying that monetary policy works in mysterious ways. It does something. I just don't know when it does yeah. something. So when you're trying to study cause and effect, the longer the distance between cause and effect I think the less you can attribute causality. So if I, let's say, bang on, bang on a table and one week later, the table collapses, can I say that I did something to, to uh, impact that? Maybe, but mm. you know, it's a lot more compelling when I bang on the table and it collapses immediately. So when I want to look at the lags in monetary policy, it's a question of the structure of the financial system. 
Now, a lot of people, so I think there's two components to this. The first, of course, is that monetary policy today is a lot more transparent than in the past. Now, Chair Powell has noted this many times. Uh, in the past, you had Alan Greenspan. He would get on, actually, he wouldn't even have a press conference. He maybe would do something, and then people would look at the Fed funds rate and try to see if he actually did anything. So the market was a lot uh, was it's more, was more difficult for the market to price in uh, the future path of policy. But today, the Fed people give a whole bunch of speeches. When the Fed's about to cut or about to hike, it's priced in way in advance. So in a sense, you know, you, the market market moves in monetary policy are priced in earlier than they are in the past. So that argues for shorter lags. Now, the second part, which is the part that I find more persuasive, is that if you're looking at lags, you got to look at the financing structure. Do a lot of people have a lot of loans that they need to roll over? Is a, are a lot of the loans floating interest rate? Well, if yes, then you're not going to have a lot of lags because when policy you're going to feel that immediately. Now, what we've seen from work from the BIS is that a lot of people have fixed rate loans that they don't have to roll over. Again, we know about the mortgages for U.S. households, but if you look at corporates, a lot of them just borrowed gobs and gobs of money in 2020. And it looks like their maturity dates are really staggered. And, you know, the bulk of them happened, let's say, 2025 and beyond. So by that time, you know, right now, looking at interest rates, we're already towards the easing cycle. So it looks like those policy lags are never going to hit. There we go. One cat, one cat, some people have floating rate loans. This is especially true if you bought from a bank. So those guys, they've been feeling it already. But again, it's just one segment of the market. The bigger segment, you know, mortgage loans, corporate bonds, together, that, that stuff is largely fixed. And I, I don't think those borrowers have felt much. And now that we're already towards the easing cycle, they won't feel much. Joseph, what else do you have your eye on? You know, either some, some you know, observation you have or maybe a little glimpse at what the next fedguy.com <laughs> post is going to be. What I think going forward that I think that people should focus more on is less on what the Fed is doing and more on what the fiscal policy is. So the fiscal policy is basically the other money printer, and they have tremendous, tremendous power, much more power than the Fed when it comes to impacting economic growth and, and, and markets. Uh, because, again, they can just print and spend, whereas the Fed changes interest rate policy and can act as an emergency lender. They're both important, but over the no, but going forward, though, it looks like the fiscal authorities are going to play an increasingly important role. And if, and I don't know if this will happen, if the Fed becomes more political, the Fed will play a lesser role. So I think we have to focus more on what Congress is thinking, what the politicians are thinking, and what the voters are thinking. So the culture and politics of the public. If we are heading towards a world where more people you know, we're okay with having a slightly higher inflation. If we can keep our job, we want a lot of free stuff. Uh, then I think that that's a that's a really a big regime change in how the entire uh, markets will operate, and that's going to be very inflationary, and it's also going to be very positive for financial assets. Very interesting. Well, Joseph, thanks for coming on the the first interview of the year. I want to shout out your YouTube channel. I believe it's just called Joseph Wang, where you you post your your, your thoughts every a weekend, and then also your book 
Central Banking 101. It was an instant classic. It was number two on Amazon in the finance section. Yeah, well, yeah. It's or- been doing really well. We have a Mandarin version and a Korean version coming out in a couple months as well. So it's it's been doing well. And yeah, thanks so much for, I think I know many people who listen to this channel have also read my book. So I, I really appreciate all the support you guys have given me. Thanks so much. Well, it, it deserves it. Yeah. And I just, it's, if people haven't read it, I mean, you know, we've been living under a rock, but uh, yeah, ch- check it out. All right, Joseph, thanks for, thanks for coming on and thanks everyone for watching. Talk to you soon. And get your t- tickets to DAS. Click the link in the description. Use code FG10 to get 10% off. All right, bye. Hope you enjoyed the interview. Show today's sponsor, Public, some love by going to public.com slash forward guidance. And I want to let you know that if you're watching this on YouTube, that forward guidance is available on all podcast apps. In addition, there are two new changes. I regularly post the entire video interview on Twitter, as well as Spotify now has the video version. So you can watch the interview uh, visually and see all of the charts, which sometimes it's hard to you know, follow what's going along if you don't see the charts. YouTube had that advantage. Now it's no longer just YouTube that has that Spotify as well, as well as Twitter. All right. Uh, thanks again for watching.